And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Yes. You guys doing well? Yes. Okay, not as many responded on that second uh, question. Or the first, or I don't know. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27 and 51 through 62. Uh, quick couple questions here, quick survey here. How many uh, really enjoy uh, camping? You like to go out camping? Camping? Anybody? Anybody? How many uh, are like me and you would consider camping to be pretending that you're homeless? <laughs> Why do that? You prefer the Hilton or the Hyatt Regency? You, you there? I was... Uh, so we got about 90 to 100, I think about 100 folks up north. It's called the P127, Psalm 127, camp out, family camp out. One of the, one of the families posted this on the uh, Facebook of uh, our church Facebook, and it says this, my wife says, camping's a tradition in my family. It was a tradition in everyone's family till we invented the house. <laughs> Jim Gaffigan, that's, it was a quote from him, so... Uh, Here's what I want you to do here this morning. Turn to the folks next to you and uh, what's your favorite uh, vacation spot? A place where you've gone, it's just like, it's out of this world or maybe a place you go to to re regroup, recharge, get revived. What is it? Real quick, discuss that with the folks sitting around you. So hang on to that just for a few moments, and I'll, uh, I'll help you to understand how that relates to our message here this morning. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to talk about being fully devoted this morning. Also, grab your sermon notes out. This is why Desert Breeze exists. This is our mission statement. If you don't know it, this is what it is. It's easy to remember. This is why we get together week in and week out, and we do the small groups, and we do all that we do. Desert Breeze exists to help unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. So what are unchurched people? Well, there are about 200,000 of those unchurched people within a five-mile radius of this place. So there's a lot. There's a lot of people out there that would fit into the category of being unchurched. Unchurched meaning this, that they can either, they can be a believer or a non-believer, but they're not connected to a local church family. And so, Desert Breeze exists to help unchurched people become fully devoted followers of Christ. Here's another thought. It's on your notes. This is really important. If you can understand this, it may take you a while to really get this. It took me a while to, to really get it into my heart and understand it. We believe that full devotion to Christ and fullness of life are one and the same pursuit. So if we help folks become fully devoted followers of Christ, they're going to live a life unlike they've ever lived before. They're going to experience a, 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 not just a, a lot of life, a length of life, an eternal life, but a depth of life, a quality of life that cannot be found any other place except through Jesus Christ. Make sense? And so it, they op operate simultaneously. As you pursue commitment to Christ, as you respond to all that he is and all that he's done for you, that's when you begin to enter into a greater degree of this, this depth and quality 
and peace and joy and love unlike you've ever experienced before. In fact, you can't find it in any place else on this planet. And, uh, and that's what we're convinced of. We believe that full devotion to Christ, living for God's glory, would be another way of saying it, living for God's glory and fullness of life, our satisfaction are one and the same pursuit. I gave you some verses there, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. That's the second part of that verse. So what is that fullness of life? John 17, 3, Jesus said, for this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we could say that eternal life is just having God in your life. Eternal life or fullness of life is, is intimacy with God. It's knowing him, walking with him, enjoying him, experiencing him in your life. That's that fullness of life. That's that quality of life. In fact, let me take it a step further. I asked you to think of that, that sweet place that you love to go for your summer vacation or whatever it might be. It tells us in Psalm 84.10... You familiar with Psalm 84? The first part of it is just out of this world. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Wonderful words that speak of this intimacy with God, getting to know God, experiencing God. And then a little bit further down in that text, in 84.10, he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand in your favorite vacation spot. Well, that's not quite how he says it, but that's how I would read it. So by the way, a thousand, that's just a little under almost three years. How many would like to get away for a three-year vacation? <laughs> your favorite vacation spot. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? But he's just, what he's saying is to have God in your life is better than three years in your favorite vacation spot. Isn't that amazing? Do you have that kind of relationship with him? I want, that, that's why we exist, to help you to, to experience that kind of a relationship with him. That's what we're talking about here this morning as it relates to being fully devoted to Christ. And um, what's interesting, the, the book of Luke can be divided up in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it can be divided up into is the chapters one through eight are all about who Jesus is. We've spent a lot of time on that. And now we're heading into chapters nine through 18. We embarked on nine last weekend talking about impact. And so this weekend talking about fully devoted. And so chapters nine through 18 are all about what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's what we're gonna talk about here in just a moment. But first what I wanna do I want to pray for the names that have been placed in here. There's quite a number of names in here. Many of you put names on those cards and placed them in here. We're going to pray for these folks. These are people that you know that don't know Jesus. How many know some people that don't know Christ? And so if they're not in here, be thinking about them and begin add them, add them to our prayer here this morning, that God would invade their life with the gospel of Christ and uh, transform their life and they would come to know him. So we're gonna pray for that. We're gonna pray also for this harvest uh, crusade that's up next weekend. I would encourage you to go to this. Take an unchurched family member or friend with you because the music and the message it will be just what they need to hear the, the amazing gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let's just take a moment. Would you bow your heads with me? We're gonna pray for this and then I'm gonna pray for our study this morning then we'll dive into our study. So bow your heads with me. Let's just take a moment. Let's pray for this harvest crusade and the names that are in this bowl. Judge of all the earth, God, you, you have selected your son to be the judge of the earth. 
and we tremble to think of the judgment that awaits all outside of, of your covenant, of your grace. And we pray before it is too late, may those we love, those that are written on these cards in, in this bowl, and many of those that are even coming to mind, even right now, those that we love, may those that we love be reconciled to you so that they do not suffer the punishment that is theirs and would have been ours apart from you. Lord, let us see the, the seriousness of reaching lost people for your kingdom and what hangs in the balance for all eternity, people's lives. God, we pray for this Harvest Crusade that you would use this, the message, the music, to get the gospel into the hearts and lives and may many, many people come to know you through this Harvest Crusade and be integrated into the local church families here in the Phoenix metropolitan area. We pray these things in his name. And we also pray for our study here this morning as we, as we study this idea of what it means to be fully devoted to you. you. You are indescribably good and unimaginably glorious. There is nothing more life liberating and soul satisfying than a life fully devoted to your son, Christ Jesus. Yet in our, in our God-ignoring, pride-exalting, sin deceiving world, we fail to see how beautiful, desirable, and satisfying he is. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that 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 spell would be broken over us and our hearts would be so enthralled with who Christ is and what he has done for us that we would be fully devoted to him, experiencing the fullness of life that only he can give, ruining us for anything else. We pray these things in his beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. So let's uh, dive into this study. Grab your uh, Bibles. I'm sure you have those, and let me begin reading. I'll read through the text. It's, it's somewhat, somewhat of a lengthy text, so hang in there with me on this text. Um, starting in verse 18, chapter 9, now it happened that as he was praying alone, that's Jesus, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered... So he's hanging out with his disciples and he asked them this question and John, the, and they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That, that's an important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. I love Matthew's account because he goes into a little bit more detail than that. And then in verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And don't you find that's a little interesting? They're going to hear this over and over again, and yet it, it doesn't dawn on them after all of these things happen. They're still confused about this, and yet we see it right here. So I, I find that somewhat fascinating. You're going to hear him say that again and again to them. Verse 23, now he's going to talk about what, what that really looks like to be fully devoted to him. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to rescue us and reconcile us to the Father, this is what our lives are going to look like here. This is what full devotion looks like. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or forfeits himself or loses his soul? So see, what he, I mean, what he's saying there, he's just saying, so what? You got a bank account that's full. So what? You've accomplished great things in life, but if you don't know Christ, you've lost your soul is what he's saying. It's pretty serious. Yeah, you've, you've been very successful as a person and maybe in many areas of your life, and yet without Christ, you will perish. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, Truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to jump ahead to verse 51, and we're going to come back next week and talk about the section from 28 uh, to verse 50, and it's the transfiguration. It's really the glory of God. I'm going to talk to you about what is the glory of God, why we need it, need it how to get it. Because that's what he's talking about. They have an experience of the glory of God that's just out of this world something that, that you need to understand and, and have an experience in your own life. But we'll talk about that next week. Let's jump ahead because we're talking here about being fully devoted to Christ. Verse 51, and when the days drew near for him to be taken, it's talking about um, the crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, ascending to the Father, right hand of the Father. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I like that. Have you ever felt like that before? God, could you just call fire down from heaven right now on this person that's bothering me? Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. Notice his response. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Now, you can see on the notes there's three things that help us to understand this, what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. So what does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ? It is about having, it's about finding a new purpose, a new priority, and a new passion. That's where we're headed with the study. Three things, so let's, let's unpack this. So first of all, it's about finding a new purpose, a, a new meaning, a new significance. And by the way, you'll notice that beside each one of these, I have our G process. Here at Desert Breeze, We've defined it with five G's of what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Christ. And G1, anybody know what G1 is? What's G1? Anybody, go ahead and yell it out to me. Don't be so timid. 
Genuine, good, yeah. It means to be a genuine Christian. It goes right along with this, purpose, having a sense of meaning and purpose. When, when you're a genuine Christian, you're gonna have a sense of meaning and purpose. You're gonna find a new meaning and purpose in Christ Jesus. You're gonna make a commitment to Christ and to a local church family. That's what it means to be a genuine Christian. Notice in verses 18 through 20, he asked them, well, who do people say I am and who do you say I am? And Peter said, the Christ of God. And then in verses 21 through 22, he talks about himself, Christ being persecuted, he's gonna die, he's gonna resurrect. We don't know what that means. That's the substitutionary atonement. That's the theological uh, belief that he died for us in our place, for our sins, to rescue and reconcile us to the Father. And then in verses 23 through 27, basically, let me give you a summary statement. He's really talking about the glory of God, and what he's telling us there is that we were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. That's what you were created for, to enjoy the riches of God's glory. Now, let me reread verses 23 through 27. Keep your Bibles on. We're going to go back to the text and reread it from time to time just to kind of unpack it. But you need to understand this. In Semitic literature and language, very often the second and third sentences just restate what happened in the first. So in verse 23 when it says, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You're saying, okay, what does that mean? What does that, what exactly does that mean? Well, he he reiterates that in using different phrase here. Once again, Semitic literature does that. Second, third sentences just restate what is in the first. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Okay, I'm not, I'm not following you yet. Okay, well, look at the third sentence. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses and forfeits himself? I talked about it there just a few moments ago. So are you going to chase after the created things or are you going to make the creator your purpose and your significance in life? You're going to do one or the other. You're going to either make much of the created things for your glory or for the glory of somebody or something else or you're going to pursue God. You're going to make much of him and live your life ultimately for his glory. And in fact, he says something here in verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The word life there is not bios. That would be the, the Greek word where we get our word biology. Uh, bios, it's not bios, but it's psyche, which is fascinating here. So it's not physical. So when he says, for whoever would save his life, he's not saying your physical life, but he's talking about your psyche, your psychological life, your inner life, which is your purpose, your meaning, your significance. So for whoever would save his life, so if you're gonna try to find your significance, your purpose, your meaning in creation apart from the creator, you're gonna lose your life. That's what he's saying. Or if you're going to find your meaning, purpose, significance in the creator, that's where you're going to find life. It's much simpler than what you may think as you read through that. That's all he's saying. That's, that's the two ideas here. So let me give you some fill in the blanks. You can't live without purpose. That's one thing that we can draw from this. You can't live without purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has put eternity into man's heart. So in your heart, you ask those deep questions 
My dog Brownie never asked these questions, these deep questions. She was just concerned about whether she was going to eat today or be watered or where she's going to sleep or chasing the dog up along, you know, the next door neighbor's dog up along the fence line. My, my dog Brownie did not worry about anything about where did I come from and why am I here and where am I going? Those are the big three questions that typically we grapple with. We, we try to define those. And so you need to have purpose. You cannot live without purpose. In fact, it tells us in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred. Without a purpose, your heart becomes sick. And you'll, bit, you'll put a bullet in your head. That's what people do. Or they overdose on drugs. Or they try to cut their wrists. I've seen that. I've been to a lot of calls like that as a, as a firefighter, paramedic, but also as a pastor. Because their life, they have no hope. They've lost their sense of hope. They don't have any meaning in their life. Why? Because they built their life on the temporal as opposed to the eternal, and it's just a matter of time. The temporal will be gone, thus temporal. It's not going to last. You build your life on anything that's temporal, anything in creation. You get your sense of meaning and purpose out of anything that's in creation. It's a matter of time. Just a matter of time, it's gonna be gone. That's what he's saying. Live, live for the eternal. I, I created you to live with that eternal in mind, with me at the center of your life. That's, that's the point here. Here's the next one. You must die to your old way to finding your purpose. That's what he's saying in verses 24 through 25. You must die to your old approach to finding your purpose, meaning, and significance in life and live your life for God's purpose, meaning, and significance. Now, the old way is consistent with what we hear in our culture today. It, it goes something like this. You've heard it before. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Find what you really want to do and do it. In other words, let your dreams and desires be the ultimate authority of your life. And that's a sandcastle, by the way. Yeah, you might achieve great things. What good is if a man that gains the whole world? Wow, you're really successful. But just, you lost your soul. We see that every day. Look around. Read the newspaper. Watch the news. People that look in our culture, whoa, look at what he did. Look what he accomplished. But he doesn't know God. He lost a soul. He's going to hell for all eternity. What good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? He doesn't have a relationship with God. He, he missed the big E on the eye chart. That's what life's all about. It's about knowing God. It's about experiencing him. Now, this comes in two different forms. So in other words, let your dreams and desires be the uh, ultimate authority in your life. And that comes in two different forms. Uh, one would be the secular. You're nobody unless you have money, status, careers, success, achievements, accomplishments, acquisitions, accolades, whatever they might be, et cetera, et cetera. There's the traditional way of, of looking at that too. You're nobody unless you're married with kids or grandkids with white picket fence, great family vacations, and you attend church maybe regularly or semi-regularly or at least Christmas and Easter. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the secular traditional. If you do it the old way, you will end up losing your life. It's a sandcastle, verse 24. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses himself? Verse 25, why? Philosopher C.S. Lewis said this, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink 
1854, 1921, this is what he says, the human heart in which God has placed eternity is so huge that all the world is too small to satisfy it. That's the reason why if you pause long enough between those happiness highs, that next pursuit, I mean, think about the pursuits that you've had. If you live long enough, you realize those things that you thought, whoa, I can't wait until I get that, achieve that, acquire that, whoo, yes. How long did it take before you were looking for the next thing? You guys know what I'm talking about. Why is that? Because the inconsolable human longing is evidence that you were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. That's your next fill in the blank. You were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. Verses 26 through 27. Keep your Bibles open. Let me go back there. So this is what he says. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me. What does it mean to be ashamed of him? What does it mean to be ashamed of Christ? What would be the opposite of being ashamed? To have some pride, honor, so you're going to honor and have pride. That's the reason why it tells us in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Man, when you encounter the gospel, you're not ashamed of him. Believe me, you're not ashamed of Christ. But he's saying, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you, because one of these days you're going to stand before me and give an account, and, and you're going to see my glory unlike you've ever seen it before, and I'm going to say, depart from me. You don't want to hear that. That's what he's saying in that verse. And you're missing out not only in the glory that will come, but you're also going to miss out on the glory that you can have in this life. And he talks about that in verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He's talking about the transfiguration. And he's talking about getting a slice of heaven on earth, which we can experience in our intimacy with God. And I don't know if you've ever had that, that experience before where you just, you, you're just almost overwhelmed by, the, by God's glory, a sense of his presence on your heart that you just like, I mean, you, didn't, you couldn't even put it into words. When it talks about, when we talk about, I'll, I'll be quoting a verse here in a minute, indescribable, indestructible joy, you can't describe it and there's no, nothing that can take it away from you. That sense of his presence, the glory of God that's what you were created for. You were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. You didn't create yourself, so you can't tell yourself what you were created for. You were created by God, for God, to find your deepest satisfaction in living for the glory of God. And God's glory is best displayed in lives that are most satisfied in him. Okay. I think, you, I think you missed that. I, I, I really do. I think maybe you probably weren't paying attention right then, just that moment. I looked out over the audience, and some of you just kind of faded out just, just for a moment. You're just kind of like, oh. And I don't think you really got that. So let me ask you this question. Uh, if you were created for God's glory, to enjoy the glory of God, how is that best displayed in your life? How is that best displayed in your life, the glory of God? How is it best displayed in your life? I just told you it. By, see, you, you guys weren't paying attention to that. In the first place. Yeah. Like, what am I going to do here? <laughs> How is his glory best displayed in your life? By you being satisfied in him. By you being satisfied in him. By you being satisfied in him. Are you satisfied in him? So, so each and every day, what you should be doing is to be satisfied in him. Find your deepest satisfaction in him. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. It's not something in creation. By the way, the things in creation are wonderful gifts from God and ultimately pointers back to God where he's the ultimate satisfaction. Do they bring a level of satisfaction? You bet they do. 
I don't know if you guys celebrated this last Friday, but it was, what was last Friday? Anybody? National Donut Day, baby. Praise God. I think every Friday should be National Donut Day. And we ate donuts. I had this, I had this big apple fritter, and it was like, a, it was like, it was big chasing it with a latte. Oh, my goodness. It was satisfying for a moment, depending on how long it took me to eat it and drink it, and then chased it with another donut. It was only a half a donut. But man, that was good. But so those are gifts from God and pointers back to God, the ultimate satisfaction of our souls. Did you know that? So there's nothing wrong with the things that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, you want to have a family and you want to have kids and grandkids and that's all great and that's cool and, and to have a nice home and those things. But don't make that your purpose in life and your meaning in life. That's all I'm saying. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But let those things be gifts from God and pointers back to God. And, and you're going to enjoy them even that much more in that. And, and they won't have a hold of your life. Those good things won't become God things in your life and rule your life. You can easily let those things go. When God says, hey, you need to let those things go. And you do. Boom. You let them go. And uh, God's glory is best displayed in lives that are most satisfied in him. Here's the next thing on your notes. Christ gives us a purpose a meaning and happiness, check this out, this is, this is big, that the worst suffering can't take and all the success in this world can't give. Now, I really, I don't believe you really believe that one. I don't really, because I struggle with believing that one, but I, because I let my circumstances, I let the things that happen to me, people, things, circumstances, rule my life more so than Christ. And it's evident by how I respond to the junk in my life. And uh, I just don't always respond well, but if I believe that, I would respond differently. Christ gives us a purpose that the worst suffering can't take and all the success in this world can't give. Verses 18 through 22, who do you say that I am? You're Christ, the son of the living God. And then, as I said, in Matthew 16, he goes and he elaborates a little bit more. And in that, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, this proclamation of faith, of knowing who I am, those that know me and walk with me and enjoy me and experience me, that's my church, and I'm gonna build my church, and the gates of hell won't what? Won't prevail. Bring on all the bad stuff, because they're not gonna succeed in your life because you've got me. That's what he's saying. The gates of hell won't prevail. That's why I love what Paul, uh, Peter says to second-generation Christians. Now, now, keep in mind, Peter was a first-generation Christian, and he says in 2 Peter uh, 1, I think it's 1.16, he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were swept away by his, blor- his glory and his, his beauty and all of who he is. And now he's speaking to second-generation Christians that didn't, didn't have that opportunity to see Jesus up close and personal. And yet they have, they have that intimacy with him because he says in 1 Peter 1, 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an in, indescribable and indestructible joy, an unspeakable and glorious joy. You hear what he's saying? That, there is, that you can have a relationship in such a way that there's no suffering... There's no suffering on this planet that can take it from you, and there's no success in this world that even comes close to giving to you what you have in Christ. Well, think about that just for a minute. Do you, do you have that? Do you experience that? 
Let me say something that's even a little bit more, uh, might sound a little more outrageous. The most, the most rapturous delights we have ever had in this world, food, music, art, sex, family, friends, money, vacations, are a dim glimpse of the bottomless ocean of love and joy we have in Christ. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, woo, that's good stuff. That's true. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Well, I hear people say, well, if I could just, if I could just get married, or if, I, if we could just have kids, or if we could just get rid of these kids, <laughs> or, I mean, it's always if, if, if this, if that. Some of you are even thinking that this morning. Wait a minute, well, you have everything you need in Christ. That's a good goal to, to achieve, but why are you trying to achieve it? So that you can be happy, you have all the happiness in him. It tells us in Psalm 63.3, Psalm 63.3, his steadfast love is better than life. Do you hear that? Oh, I, I think you have a wonderful house. That's a great house. Oh, you're gonna buy another house? Oh, that's wonderful. Why are you doing that? Is it for you? Is it for his glory? Are you trying to fill a void inside of you that only he can fill? What are you chasing? What are you pursuing? His steadfast love is better than anything in life. Yeah, yeah, we, we need to work and, and we can achieve things and we can accomplish things, but why? To, why are we doing that? Is it, is it for us or for him? And, and that's, that's, those are good questions for us to ask. I'm gonna be... Uh, I'm going to be teaching a class this, starting this Wednesday night, June the 7th, from 7 o'clock to 8.30. It'll be right here in the auditorium for six weeks on intimacy with God because it's not enough to know that God loves you. It's not enough to know, know about his steadfast love. You must experience that love in your heart. How do you do that? When was the last time that you had that experience where you could actually say, wow, the most rapturous delights we have ever had in this world are a dim glimpse of the bottomless ocean of love and joy that we have in Christ. I mean, can you honestly say that? We're gonna talk about that uh, in that class. You can sign up online and, and, and show up this Wednesday night, and we're gonna work through it. This is what God's been working on me uh, since the beginning of the year. Oftentimes, I'll, I'll ask God, God, what, what? in what areas of my life do I, do I need to grow? Do I want to grow? And he put that in my heart and I've been working through that in my own life. I just want to share with you. This class is actually for me, okay? I'm sorry. It's not for anybody else but for me. And so you can hang out with me as I talk about some of these things and, and certainly add to that and probably will be very beneficial for me, for me and you in that class. And so the next one is Priority, you've got to make him the priority. So if he's truly the purpose, purpose, meaning, and significance of your life, so, so what does it mean to be fully devoted follower of Christ? It is about finding a new purpose, meaning, and significance, and priority. So kind of this, this next level is that then he's going to be the priority of your life. And, and I put down their values and practices. So the second G, so the first G is a genuine Christian. Second G is what, anybody? Growing, growing. yeah. So this is about being a growing Christian. And uh, turn to the uh, folks sitting around you real quick and ask, I've got two questions for you. What are spiritual disciplines? What are spiritual disciplines and what's your favorite? Of course, if you don't know the first one, you won't be able to answer the second one, okay? But what's your favorite? What is it that really helps you to connect with God that you love to do that really helps you to give that sense of his love from your head into your heart? Real quick, do that. 
Okay, some of you are looking at me just with a blank stare on your face, okay? Okay, what are spiritual disciplines? Anybody? Yell them out to me. Prayer. Prayer. What we're doing right here. Bible study. Small groups. Silence and solitude. I mean, things like that. Those are, so there are certain things that you do that help you to connect with God in ways that make Christ more real to you. And then you're able, therefore, to really face the issues because he becomes a priority in your life. And, and so what are those things? You need to know those things. What are those things that you, you kind of battle with, with these desires in your heart over? And he helps you to kind of work through those things. Notice, uh, as we kind of work through this, Notice the language here in verses 57 through 62. I think that Jesus hit the nail on the head. There's a lot that we don't know behind the scenes, and he hits the nail on the head with this first guy. If you have your Bibles, you know, keep them, uh, keep them open there just for, uh, just for a moment as we'll go back. But as they were going along the road, this is verse 57, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And how does Jesus respond? He's, he's, he's probably cutting to the chase with this guy. He says, oh, Yeah. Well, comfort's more important to you than following me because I don't have a place to lay my head. Are you willing to give up your home? Are are you willing to uh, do what Chuck and Tammy did? They gave up everything and went to the mission field? Are you willing to do that? If you really want to follow me? That's what he's saying. And he obviously hit the nail on the head with this guy saying, oh yeah, you, you want to follow me, but are you willing to give up those things that I ask you to give up? That's what he's saying. And then you'll notice the language as he works, as he works through that. But basically, he's dealing with what's, what's the priority of our lives. He says in verse 59, Lord, let me first bury my father. D- does that sound a little mean of our Savior to say uh, to him, no, no, you're not going to bury your dad. Get over here and follow me. If you really love me, forget your father. Let other people bury him. Does that sound mean? Isn't that what it sounds like he's saying? How many would say that that's exactly what he's saying? No, that he's not saying that, actually. What this was in this culture is that his father wasn't probably going to die for a number of years. And what he's saying, that this is a higher priority right now. I'm going to wait until dad dies, and then I'll get my inheritance, and then I'll follow you. And then I'll follow you. That's the idea there. So it wasn't actually mean at all. He's just saying, no, my dad, my money, my life is a higher priority. You'll also notice in verse 61, he says, I will follow you, but let me first... So the first one said, let me first bury my father. This one said, let me first, that's verse 61. Jesus is saying, I must be first. Are you not my disciple? I must be your priority over money, over your career, over your family, over your father. I have to be your highest priority. And notice in verse 62, notice how it ends in our text. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So that doesn't make sense to us. Did you go out and do some plowing this morning before you came to church? Anybody here? Not typically. Nobody even knows what that really, what that's about. Maybe we've seen it in an old Western movie, you know, something like that. That's the closest we get to it. What is he saying here? This is an image uh, that really helps us, uh, that understands this culture, that when you plowed in the rocky soil, you can never look away when you were plowing. Why? Because it would make the furrow crooked, but also if you hit a rock, it would break the plow and you're, you were doomed. How are you going to fix that plow? And so it was well known in those days, farmers could not look away, could not look up, had to look right at the plow. You had to be completely focused when you were plowing. You had to be completely without distraction. You had to ditch 
competing thoughts and just watch what you were doing. That's why the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Focus on him. Make him the priority of your life. That's Hebrews 12, 2. So let me give you some fill in the blanks. Your relationship with Christ must be your priority over money, career, comfort, parents, family, or you're not his disciple. So we went from purpose, his glory, to now, is he a priority? Failure to put Christ first means that you have a certain amount of spiritual deadness, blindness, deaf, deafness, and insensitivity. Did you notice in verse 60 he says, leave the dead to bury the dead? He's not talking about physically dead. Physically dead people can't bury dead people, okay? Logically, it doesn't work. So he's saying, let the spiritually dead bury the dead, the spiritually dead. So what he's saying is that the, the spiritually dead are going to focus on the temporal more than the eternal. So if you find yourself with your thoughts, when you look at your thoughts, look at your heart. Remember the heart chart a few weeks ago? Okay. Uh, by the way, let me just say that the two most popular messages in the history of Desert Breeze happened a couple weeks ago, and the one was the heart we talked about the heart, and the second one was storms, and, and the one that preceded that was intimacy with God. All three of those are probably the most popular that have been downloaded and listened to in the history of, of Desert Breeze. So that heart chart is really an important uh, key ingredient to us understanding our hearts. I'd encourage you to go on and listen to those messages if you haven't heard them. But in that heart, that heart, at the bottom of the heart is our treasure. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. We'll get to that in a minute. It's on your notes. But, uh, but what you treasure most, it will dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. It's at, what's at the bottom of your heart? What do you treasure? What's most important to you? And everybody treasures, treasures something. And what he's saying is that spiritually dead people treasure the temporal over the eternal. Let the dead bury the dead. Let them be preoccupied with that. You need to be preoccupied with the eternal. That's what he's saying. Tracking with me? Does that make sense? Yeah. He said, what should dominate our lives is the eternal. What should dominate our thoughts is, is Christ. If, if God is all that he says he is, oh my goodness, just the, the thoughts of him, the interaction with him, the walking with him should take us to the moon and back. The experience of him in our lives. I love his presence. I love intimacy with God. That's what we have as believers in Christ. I don't know what I would do without him. I mean, I love that song that we sang uh, earlier is that, oh God, you are with me in my... I don't even know how the words go, but it's, it's, good. it's a good song, okay? <laughs> don't ask me to sing it, but I love it. I was in here while they were warming up, and it was good. It, I was rearranging chairs back there, and it brought tears to my eyes as I was thinking about his presence in my life. Oh, my goodness. I can't think about it. Man, I love his presence. That's what he's saying. You're going to be preoccupied with the eternal over the temporal. You, you are. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's going to dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. Matthew 26, 21. That's your next fill in the blank. So if I were to watch the video of your last two months, what would I conclude is the highest priority of your life? Because it, it works like this. If I could, could watch what you practice in your life, what are your practices? 
So, you, so I probably should say, if you're truly a follower of Christ, Bible study, Bible's important, prayer, hanging out with other Christians, small group, attendance, Desert Breeze regularly, if this is your church home or whatever your church home is, that would be a, that would be a practice. Now, don't work on the practice if it's not there. It's not there yet. You gotta work on the priority, but much deeper than that, you gotta work at the value. It's not a value. See, because the things you value, you prioritize. The things you prioritize, you practice. So we tend to focus on the practice. Well, I need to read my Bible more. Well, why don't you work on your value because it's not really a value. If you begin to see him for who he is, believe me, believe me, nothing's gonna get in the way of spending time with him. You gotta work on your heart. You gotta work on the, and, and just confess the fact, you know what, he's not a value. I say that he's, it's, it's a said faith. He's not really, he's my savior and Lord, but it's kind of just sad. I, I'm not really experiencing it. So God, renew that in my heart. Let me know that. Let me experience that deep in my heart. I want, I want to know you. I want to experience you. And so I confess that my heart's not there because my practices aren't there. Believe me, it's gonna change the way you respond to life and how you do life and how you see life and how you work through the difficulties of life. The things you value, you prioritize. The things you prioritize, you practice. Is he a priority in your life? What would your life tell me as I follow you around, as I, as I look at your life? I mean, Proverbs 2, 1 through, 10, I, uh, 1 through 6, I put that in there, that you will look for it as for hidden treasure. If I told you, I just sold you this house and you moved in and you're all excited about it, it's a great house, but then I said, hey, listen, I buried $100 million in the backyard and it's yours if you can find it. What would you do? You'd freak out is what you would do. You'd go back there and you'd, buy, you'd go out and buy a backhoe and start digging, wouldn't you? You'd do everything you could. We have something worth more than $100 million in Christ and what we have in him. And when we begin to see that, oh my goodness, that value begins to work out its way that he becomes a priority and then the practice of our, of our life begin to, to feed that to us. Now, it's interesting in this that each of these have an excuse. Lord, let me first do this. Let me first do that. And I've heard this before. How many have ever heard this? I want to first have some fun, and then I will commit my life to Jesus. Anybody? Show of hands. Anybody? I had a guy last night that taught a college group, and he said he used to hear that all the time. And let me tell you what that is. That's asinine. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I didn't mean to be offensive. I'm sorry. Actually, I did. What the heck? What are you thinking? You mean to tell me that there's something in creation more satisfying than the creator and you're gonna put him off for a time so that then later on you're gonna come back to him somehow? That's not gonna work out really well for you because your heart will probably become hard. First of all, you're not even thinking clearly. Have you ever tasted of his fellowship, the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his child? There's nothing that compares to those, those things we have in Christ. There's nothing. See, you're being deceived. You're being duped when you think that. That's what these guys are saying. That's why he says, you, you got deadness working in your life if you believe that. That's why he says, let the dead bury the dead. You're dead. You're not even thinking clearly. You're dead spiritually. There's some deadness in your life. If you think that there's something in creation more satisfying than the creator, you're not even thinking. You're spiritually dead, maybe partially dead.
one of the things that I try to do on weekend services is, uh, I'm not, this is in the lecture, give you a bunch of information so you can walk out of here and go, wow. It's not a motivational talk to give you action steps, although there, there, there can be some motivation in this. And it can give you information too, as a lecture does. No, this is a sermon. Sermons are meant to help you to worship. It's to capture your heart. I want your heart to be captured by Christ. I want you to know him. I want you to experience him. And, um, and what that is is that as you worship, that while you're studying, this is the reason why you study, this is why you do spiritual disciplines, is that you want to ascribe worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole being, your mind, emotion, and will. He becomes the treasure and therefore the greatest pleasure of your life. You find pleasure in him that exceeds the pleasures of anything else in this world. Listen, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. He's not your, just your treasure. He's your deepest pleasure. Okay, uh, I had one other thing here. Let me, let me give you an illustration here, and then we'll move on. I spent a, a little bit, uh, I shoot from the hip a little bit here, obviously, okay? And uh, I don't always go by my notes, and I kind of go with the flow of how God's speaking to me at any given time, and so I... I don't apologize for that, okay? I said all that just to say that I don't apologize for that because I want you to really hear from God. I don't know why I even said that. I didn't need to say that, did I? Okay. Let me, let me give you, hope, hopefully help you to have a bigger view of God. If our galaxy, the Milky Way, the Milky Way, our galaxy was the size of North America. Think about that just for a minute. If that's true, then our entire solar system would be the size of this bottle. And the earth would be just a speck in this bottle. And we know that the Milky Way galaxy is one of at least 100 billion galaxies that we can see, and the universe is probably much bigger than what we can see. And if God created all of that with his fingers, the Bible says in Psalm 8, he created all of that with his fingers, and if he upholds it all with the word of his power, Hebrews 11. Let me ask you this question. Do you ask a God like that to be your assistant? Do you connect with him in order to get him to do what you want? Much of American uh, Christianity teaches that, teaches that form. They have a very low view of God, and that's why you're not seeing much transformation happening in people's lives. Do you connect with him in order to get him to do what you want? Do you ask him to be your consultant? Of course not, nor are you his consultant. No, knowing him, loving him, enjoying him, serving him becomes your highest priority in life. And the more that you are faithful to this, the more you will be free, fulfilled, and flourish like never before. When the psalmist says, Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the Son of Man, that you care for him. It's no wonder that that chapter is sandwiched with these two phrases at the front end and the tail end of that. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
He's captivated by the beauty and the glory and the greatness of this God who thinks about him and cares for him. I mean, what greater worth and value could you possibly have than for the creator to be mindful of you and care for you? See, intimacy, intimacy with God is an enchanted reality in a disenchanted world. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, God so vastly, is so vastly wonderful and so completely, and delight, so completely delightful that without anything other than himself meets and overflows our deepest longings. Okay, passion, believe me. If you have these first two, if you have a new purpose and he's a new priority in your life, it's gonna transform your passion. And this takes us to verses 51 through 56. You're gonna have a love and a mercy unlike you've ever had before. This is G3 and G4. G3 is giving and going. So if you're genuine, you're gonna be growing. If you're growing, you're gonna be giving and going, going as you wanna tell others about Christ. Giving is you're gonna be plugged into a local church family and be contributing with your time and your talent and your treasures. Now Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and it says in verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him. They rejected him, and so therefore, what did James and John say? They asked Jesus, you want us to call fire down from heaven? And like I, I asked you, have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever had somebody just like, you have a next door neighbor and their dog keeps taking a dump in your yard? They like, call fire out of heaven on that one. That's one. Or someone pulls out in front of you, flips you off. Ooh, I'd like to have fire from heaven on that one. You have your list? I got my list. And what does he do? He rebukes them. Now, why would they do that? Why were they so feisty, aggressive, hostile? They had just experienced the transfiguration, which we're going to talk about next week. This transfiguration with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Elijah is the Old Testament prophet known to have called down fire on the enemies of God. My kind of prophet. I love it. The transfiguration revealed that Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. So think of the logic of the disciples here. They're just trying to honor Jesus. Jesus, you are greater than Elijah, and these people just rejected you. Shall we call fire on them out of heaven? And he rebukes them. Why? The answer is just three chapters later in Luke. I've got it right here. It's on your notes. You'll have to read it later. Luke 12, 49 through 50. I came to cast fire on the earth, this is Jesus speaking, and would that it were ready, already kindled. Now that sounds a little bit, uh, how do you, doesn't, I don't understand what you're talking about here. Now remember Semitic literature and language, the second sentence is a restatement of the first. So let me read the second statement that Jesus makes. So I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Now he's gonna explain it. Semitic lit literature, verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Wait a minute, you've already been baptized. No, no, not water baptism baptism of fire, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is he talking about here? Here's what he's talking about. Next thing on your notes. Jesus came to be immersed in the fire of God's judgment for us. He came to bear our judgment. One of these days, his second coming, he will bring judgment, but the first one, he came to bear our judgment 
1 John 2, 2 and 4, 10. And this is the answer to all the riddles. In the Old Testament, when people wanted to atone for their sins and receive God's forgiveness, they would take a sacrifice, put it on the altar, and burn it with fire. All of those fires in the Old Testament were pointing to this ultimate fire in Jesus. Next point in your notes. The more you are melted and amazed by his sacrificial love for you, the more you will have this new purpose, priority, and passion for Christ. So Thomas Chalmers, Scottish mathematician and leader of the Free Church of Scotland, 1800s, preached a sermon titled, The Explosive Power of a New Affection. This is what he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the explosive power of a new affection. What if I want the things in creation more than I want the creator? The cure to that is to cultivate an appetite for the creator that exceeds your appetite for creation. That's what he's saying. See, a holy person is so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. That's what this Thomas Chalmers is saying. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. That's why I love St. Augustine and what he said. I believe the cure is right here. To fall in love with God is the greatest of all romances. To seek him, the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. And when you do, here's the last thing. This is what happens in your heart. You're not wanting to call fire down on your enemies from heaven, but people saved by grace will be profoundly humble people who are not overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, or insensitive, but loving, empathetic, forgiving, and understanding, and sensitive. See, if you're not growing in humble compassion toward others, even your enemies, you're not living in the reality that you were so sinful that Jesus had to die for you, that you are a sinner, emphasis on sinner, saved by grace. If you're not growing in confident contentment, even in difficulties, then you're not living in the reality that he loved you so much that he wanted to die for you. You're a sinner saved by emphasis, grace, by grace. So this new purpose, priority, passion will be a lifelong journey for every true believer in Jesus Christ, all for God's glory. That's G5. So let me ask you this. What is your next step? What is your next step? Maybe it's to to come to faith in Christ, to establish this new purpose. Maybe you've done that, now it's making him a priority in your life. Or maybe you're struggling with that last one, the passion. You need to go back to the first two. Let's pray. So, Father God, there is no way that we can come to terms with someone who has given his life completely for us without us giving and living our life completely for him, the Lord Jesus. Let us do that. May we be more fully devoted to Christ, finding this new purpose, priority, and passion, and therefore experiencing the fullness of life that only he can give for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys.